You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermasters Hunter, Samuel, Adam, and Birdsong. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Tim and Brendan. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Today's episode, well, I'd like you to keep in the back of your mind today that some of the earlier French buccaneers, Francois Lolonnais and his crew, for example, they were alive when this story took place, most of it. Some of them were living in France when this story took place. Now, France was the most populous nation in Europe, so most of them probably didn't see this take place as it's fairly localized in and around Paris and Orléans, but this would have shaped their worldview. It would have been something that was a formative political experience for them. That's the reason why I think it's necessary from time to time to talk about the history of the world surrounding the pirates. However, as you may have noticed, I always struggle with just how much to talk about that stuff. Sometimes I'll give just a brief outline of major events, and other times I'll go way overboard. For example, we never really talked much about the Franco-Dutch War. On the other hand, when we talked about the Glorious Revolution in England, which we aren't even really done with yet, I went way into it. And when we talk about the War of the Spanish Succession, we're going to go into great detail because we have to, to understand the Nassau Pirates. Similarly, today, we're going to begin our look at the Nine Years' War of 1688 to 1697. It's also known as the War of the League of Augsburg, or the War of the Grand Alliance, and it was a big war. It encompasses a ton of tertiary conflicts that are going to involve and impact the pirates. So we're going into detail. Now, we're not going to do a battle-by-battle breakdown of the war, although there will be some of that. Instead, I'm going to focus on the personalities and the politics that made this war happen and made it what it was. And when we're talking about the personalities that molded the early modern world and the Nine Years' War, there's really only one name. This is episode 145, Before the Dawn. The historian Will Durant wrote of King Louis XIV of France, quote, The most famous of French kings was only one quarter French. He was half Spanish by his mother, Anne of Austria, one-quarter Italian by his grandmother, Marie de Medicis. 
he took to Italian art and love, afterward to Spanish piety and pride. In his later years, he resembled his maternal grandfather, Philip III of Spain, far more than his paternal grandfather, Henry IV of France. End quote. And that's actually a reasonable place to begin the story of Louis XIV. I could take this back to Charlemagne and Hugh Capet. In fact, I may have had an outline written out to that effect, but I'm not going to do so. Instead, the grandfather of Louis XIV, Henry IV of France. And we've talked about him, you probably remember him. The Bourbon king of Navarre who married into the ruling Valois family of France, but, of course, that turned out to be a ploy by Catherine de' Medici, allegedly to lure a bunch of Protestants into Paris where they would be mercilessly massacred in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. The very same Henry Bourbon that escaped captivity and returned to Paris at the head of a Huguenot army. And after all of the other males in line for the throne were killed, or some of them, at least one of them, assassinated by Henry, Henry IV ascended the throne and became the first Bourbon king of France. As you can imagine, even though Henry eventually converted to Catholicism, the Vatican wasn't happy with this state of affairs. They didn't like Henry, and they didn't really care for the Bourbons. There was a schism between Paris and Rome that ran back for centuries, but Henry IV, just being on the throne, made things worse. The point is, though, even though Henry had annulled his marriage to his first Valois wife, and Catherine de' Medici was dead, so Henry was the sole power in Paris, he married another Medici woman, who was the daughter of his largest financial backer. Her name was Maria de' Medici and they had a son named Louis, who would go on to be Louis XIII. He didn't want his wife to become queen. In fact, he forestalled her being crowned for ten years. He probably rightfully feared that that might threaten a Medici takeover of the government of Paris. But... After the young Louis turned ten, and appeared to be healthy and a probable heir, and there were a couple of backups who we'll get to later, after that Henry relented and allowed Maria de' Medici to be crowned queen. Literally the very next day, he was assassinated. Reportedly by a Catholic zealot who happened to be in town, but there were, of course whispers of assassination. Now, we don't have any proof of that, but the Medici were well known in Italy for their occasionally less than scrupulous tactics. Those tactics had gotten two popes raised from their family during Henry's lifetime. The Medici and the Valois were almost synonymous, and the people of France deeply resented that fact. Not just the Medici influence, but all of this foreign influence in general. Of course, that's just the way politics were played. But it's noteworthy here, because that foreign queen, Maria de' Medici, who was now the queen regent, organized a marriage between Louis XIII, her son, and a Habsburg princess named Anne of Austria. That's Louis's mother, and she's important. Keep her in mind. In fact, the women in this story are all important. 
Catherine and Maria were arguably two of the most powerful people in the history of France, and Anne, well, we'll get to Anne. Among the most controversial and impactful of Anne's actions involved her personal confessor, someone that she invited into the court as her own counselor, but who became much more than that. Cardinal Armand Plessis, the Duke of Richelieu. Now, of course, Richelieu deserves an entire episode. They could do an entire podcast on just his actions in France. But for now, Richelieu and the Queen Mother, Maria de' Medici, they despised one another. And the people, well, Maria was yet another powerful Italian while Richelieu was a native son of France. The power struggles between those two are legendary and full of all of these thrusts and parries and counter-thrusts that, well, they just make your head spin. But that's a whole other story. To break that down, Richelieu was intent on wresting power out of the hands of a foreign monarch and back into French hands. Ostensibly, the king's hands, which is what he did work toward, but in reality, it was his own hands. Now, Maria executed a coup against Richelieu and thought she had succeeded, but that did eventually see her exiled from France by her own son, and that put Richelieu firmly on top. Now keep in mind here, Anne of Austria, a foreign Habsburg monarch, created this monster. But the thing about creating monsters intent on wresting power out of the hands of foreign monarchs is... Well, you can see where this is going. After Maria de' Medici was exiled, French politics devolved once again into a power struggle between Richelieu, the French native, and Anne of Austria. And that, of course, put the king, Louis XIII, firmly in the middle of all that. And, unfortunately, Louis XIII was a poor king, especially for his time and place. See... This was the era of the English Civil War and the Dutch War for Independence. Crowned heads were being lost all over the European map, and at this moment, parliamentary power appeared to be very much in fashion. And this is the important bit. The French nobility were calling for an estate's general. Those of you who are familiar with the French Revolution might remember how the monarchy feels about estates general. But there was this sense of uprising in France. However, before we get into that, we need to introduce one more player to this story. Giulio Mazzarino, better known to history as Cardinal Mazarin. Now, despite his fame as a cardinal, Mazarin was never a priest. As a young man living in Rome, he developed something of a reputation for gambling and debts and heavy drinking and a couple of illegitimate children. So his father sent him off to join the military, but he just got the kind of cushy under-officer gig that allowed him to ride a horse and dress very well and drink and gamble and seduce other men's wives. It was perfect for Mazzarino. But when he received word that his mother's health was failing, he abandoned his post. He didn't even notify his commanding officer. 
and that eventually saw him dragged before the Pope and begging for forgiveness, which he did very eloquently. The Pope found Mazarin to be a charming, intelligent young man that had an obvious talent for stretching the truth without ever quite breaking it. And so he appointed Mazarin to be a papal envoy. Now, Mazarin first was sent to Spain, and there was a war going on between France and Spain, because there was always a war going on between France and Spain. But that job brought him into contact with Cardinal Richelieu. Now, at first, Richelieu did not like Mazarin at all. He saw him as nothing but a Spanish agent and kind of a fop. But eventually, after working with Mazarin on a few deals, he began to notice that intelligence, the same qualities that the Pope had seen in this man. And in 1631, when he was eventually appointed papal envoy to Paris, Mazarin met the royal family. Now, I was tempted to use the phrase, Mazarin charmed the pants off the queen, but, well, of course, women didn't wear pants, and that's a bit on the nose. He did send flowers and perfume and jewelry and paintings and sculptures from wherever he was in Europe, all back to the queen, Anne of Austria. Now, you might think that the king would notice and be upset at this sort of behavior, but two things to note. First of all, this was a royal marriage. They were usually loveless political affairs, as was the case here, and more to the point, Louis XIII was gay. He certainly preferred the company of men. It's one of those topics that's danced around in a lot of older histories because I suppose they felt uncomfortable talking about the king's boyfriend, but he certainly had one. Several, in fact, but one favorite, who will play a role in this story. Suffice it to say, the king didn't really care if Mazarin was charming the pants off of the queen. But Richelieu noticed, and he cared. He sent word back to Rome that this envoy needed to be reined in. So Mazarin was recalled and spent two years in the holy city. And two major events took place while he was gone. In 1635, the situation in Europe deteriorated, and it did so drastically and quickly. There was a war between German Protestants and Catholics, and it had grown on the fringes to include Dutch and Danish and Swedish and even a few English forces and some Spaniards. But France had stayed firmly out of the war. But then, a Protestant army was defeated on her northeast border, and the Habsburgs were all of a sudden on her doorstep. Louis XIII might not have been a powerful king, but he wasn't a stupid king. He knew exactly why he had a Habsburg queen. It was to bring peace between the Habsburgs and the Bourbons. But he and Richelieu were of one mind in this. France knew that their sovereignty was threatened, and they declared war on the Habsburgs in Spain and the Holy Roman Empire and the Netherlands. With this action, the Thirty Years' War was on. Now, 
This put pause to all of those parliamentary aspirations of the nobility, at least for the time. There was a war to fight, and when there were Spaniards and Germans to kill, that was what took precedence. They were all for that. But they still nursed all of their plans, and they even used the war occasionally to bolster their own positions for their parliamentary aspirations. But on the 5th of September, 1638, they had another blow dealt to their plans. The Queen of France and of Austria gave birth to a baby boy. Upon his birth, this baby Louis was called Dieudon, or God-given. Will Durant writes, quote, Perhaps the French could not believe that Louis XIII had achieved parentage without divine assistance. End quote. And he writes this almost immediately after pointing out just how little Louis resembled his paternal grandfather. On an entirely different subject, completely off-topic here, Cardinal Richelieu was confident and handsome. He was a little older, but distinguished and strong and intelligent. There may or may not be anything there, but that didn't stop the talk in France. Gossip spread. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Richelieu was a cardinal in the church, and the people of France called baby Louis Dioudon, God-given. Eh? Get it? That famous French wit at work. But as the war picked up steam, Mazarin was officially raised a cardinal back in Rome. And remember that at this time, a cardinalship was more of a political office than an ecclesiastical one. As representatives of the Pope, they couldn't let too much religion get in the way of their work. But as Cardinal Mazarin, he went back to Paris as papal envoy in the hopes that he might bring Richelieu and the king to their senses and finally bring an end to French involvement in the war. But that's not how things worked out. Mazarin was firmly in Richelieu's camp. He was installed as deputary first minister of state, Richelieu's number two. Officially, that made him maybe the third or maybe fourth most powerful person in France, but practically speaking, he was number two. 
Now, that was a powerful position, and it worked out well for the two ministers of state. Richelieu was at this point consumed by the war, and that allowed Mazarin to focus more on domestic matters. While Richelieu was busy on the front, Mazarin could rush around France and put out fires. For example, there were a few rebellious plots against the king. And while I say they were against the king, really they were against Richelieu. The aristocracy in France didn't care for the job that he had been doing. Now, I'm about to throw a bunch of French names and titles at you, and most of them you only kind of need to know, so feel free to zone out a bit here. But all of this, everything we're going to cover from here on out, can be traced back to the Queen Mother, Maria de' Medici. She was, at this point, living in London, where her daughter was the queen, the wife of the Stuart king there. All of her French contacts, which she had a number of, well, they were all located right across the channel. In northern France, mostly in Normandy, though some, in fact several, as far south as Orléans. For example, there was the Comte de Soissons, King Louis XIII's cousin. He had a plan to assassinate Cardinal Richelieu and to supplant his cousin on the throne. His sister was also involved in that plan, and that was the Duchesse de Longueville. She was famously very beautiful and married to a much older man, and she is a major player in this story. When I say to keep your eyes on the women, She's one of those you need to keep your eye on. The Duchesse de Longueville, the Comte de Soissons, and even the king's own brother, the Duc d'Orléans, well, they were the most prominent nobles that were involved in all of these plots against the king, and you might notice that they were all named Bourbon. Now, this wasn't the Duc d'Orléans' first rodeo. He had been involved in a number of plots to put himself on the throne, which I think was kind of expected of brothers to the king. You know, got to keep everybody sharp. But all of them were backed by Maria de' Medici and aimed directly at Cardinal Richelieu. Even though he was still Gaston Bourbon, Duc d'Orléans, he was kind of under house arrest at this point. He wasn't really allowed to leave his palace in Orléans. Now, that plot to assassinate Cardinal Richelieu fell apart, as did all of the plots to assassinate Cardinal Richelieu. But that's why Cardinal Jules Mazarin was living in Orléans. He used it as a base to keep an eye on the brother of the king, but also to put out all of those rebellious fires that were taking place up there in northern France because of the Queen Mother in London. But it was there, in Orléans, where he learned of a plot between Gaston, the Duc d'Orléans, the king's brother, and the king of Spain. The duke intended to lose, which we should read, surrender, to surrender an important fortress in the northwest of France to a Spanish army. Now, this was yet another plan to assassinate Richelieu and replace the king, and they were going to do so with Spanish Habsburg support. But the duke was no longer the intended king. 
there was now a son and heir to King Louis the Thirteenth, And no one, not even the Duc d'Orléans, was going to upset that kind of balance, or have the blood of an infant on their hands. The difference is that, instead of Richelieu and Mazarin, it would be the Duc d'Orléans and the Duchesse de Longueville and Soissons and that lot that would hold the real reins of power. The queen behind this plan to assassinate Richelieu and replace the king, that was not Maria de' Medici. It was Anne of Austria. She had orchestrated this entire plan. She was plotting to remove her husband and Richelieu and put her own son on the throne with these other Bourbons and herself the real power behind the throne. Now, Mazarin brought this to Richelieu and the king and exposed the whole plot to the light of day except for one key element. The Comte de Soissons was executed, the Duc d'Orléans was exiled, and took his young daughter, Anne-Marie-Louis d'Orléans, who we will be talking a ton about next time with him. But Mazarin, who knew that the queen was involved here, kept his mouth shut about her involvement. Had he told Richelieu and the king that she was part of the plan, she might have been exiled or even executed. But Mazarin took steps to ensure that that did not happen. The queen knew that Mazarin knew, and Mazarin knew that she knew that he knew, and I would love to be able to hear the hidden conversation they had about exactly what she was up to. This act of treason, which is what it was, this solidified the relationship between Cardinal Mazarin and Anne of Austria. See, within the year, Cardinal Richelieu would be dead, probably of natural causes, and Mazarin was installed in his place as First Minister of France. And that made Cardinal Mazarin and Anne of Austria, in a very real way, the power couple in France. But there was another power couple that we need to mention here. While the two male Bourbons who were involved in that last plot were either executed or exiled, the Duchesse de Longueville, she wasn't implicated, at least not officially. Her marriage to the Duc de Longueville was unfulfilling, so she began an affair, a very public and publicized affair, with the Duc de la Rochefoucauld. Now, he was an army officer at this point, but he had been sent to the Bastille more than once for seditious writing. Those two, the Duchesse de Longueville and the Duc de la Rochefoucauld, grew in influence. It was becoming clear to anybody who had any political savvy whatsoever that they were kind of a court in exile. Paris was at this point in the hands of Mazarin, an Italian, and the Queen, an Austrian. And the King, he wasn't blind to this state of affairs. He took steps to protect his kingdom from his wife. See, his health had begun to fail, but he took the proper steps and wrote a will. His son, upon his death, was to take the throne, even though he was very young, but his wife, Anne of Austria, was not to be installed as regent under any circumstances. Instead, Louis XIII's uncle was to lead a regency council. Now that uncle 
was the father of the Duchesse de Longueville and the Comte de Soissons, and they would probably be on that council as well. A lot of treasonous Bourbons would be involved, but they would be French Bourbons, rather than foreign influence. Now, this was probably a good plan. However, we'll never know if it was a good plan, because the king died within a year of Richelieu, and no one, not even the leader of that regency council, wanted to see that will enacted. With Richelieu, the real power in France, and King Louis XIII, the head of state, both dead so quickly, there was a power vacuum, and everybody scrambled to fill that power vacuum. Now, had the nobles decided to enforce the king's will and empowered their own ranks, they might have been able to secure their agenda, but they would be doing so on a limited basis. Instead, they decided to take a gamble. Shortly after the king died, Queen Anne decided to pull a Cersei Lannister and told everyone that she was going to rip up the king's words and install herself as regent. Now, that is treason. But the nobles all just went along with it. They all agreed. See, if they decided to enforce the king's will, they'd have to enforce the king's will, and that meant backing the new king. Instead, should they allow this German queen and her Italian lackey to tear up the king's will, those two would take the blame. Then the nobles could swoop in and save the day from those foreign traitors and put themselves in real power. The only things standing in their way were Anne of Austria, Cardinal Mazarin, and Louis XIV. We all know that Louis XIV is not quietly assassinated as a toddler, so there's not a lot of suspense here. But it's the how that interests me. When I talk about the experiences that those young French mariners who would go on to become buccaneers later in life, when I talk about their experiences, those political and social events that might have shaped their early life, this is what I'm talking about. Will Durant and Ariel Durant, it would be a crime to omit her, they wrote, quote, Mazarin had to rely on patience, craft, and charm. He had the disadvantage of foreign birth. He assured France that though his tongue was Italian, his heart was French. But he was never quite believed. His head was Italian, his heart was his own. We do not know how much of it he gave to the Queen. He served her and his ambition zealously, and won her affection, perhaps her love. He knew that his safety and hers lay in continuing Richelieu's policy of building up the power of the monarchy against the feudal lords. End quote. Cardinal Mazarin and Anne of Austria were planning to save the institution of monarchy for their very young king. And for the record, I don't consider them the heroes here. I'm not really sure that that was a good idea even at the time. Generally speaking, I'm for the toppling of monarchies. But, you know, hopefully you can do so in a way that doesn't lead to, you know, the French terror or the horrors of Bolshevik Russia. But on the other hand, I'm not terribly fond of oligarchy either, and that was the other option. I mean, it's a step in the right direction when compared to absolute monarchy, but none of that matters. The kind of revolutions that I might support were still a couple of hundred years off. 
What we have here is a revolt of the aristocracy that looks not unlike what was happening in England. This is, of course, the Fronde. So, why did the Fronde begin? I've mentioned the parliamentary ambitions of the nobility, but why did they have those ambitions? Well, let's break down the French aristocracy really, really fast. There were essentially two branches of the aristocracy. The oldest, proudest, landed and titled aristocracy, those ancient families that sent their sons off to serve in the army for generation after generation, that was the noblesse de paix, the aristocracy of the sword. The second branch was called the noblesse de robe, or the aristocracy of magistrates. They were generally seen as kind of nouveau riche, but of course this was that period in European history where nouveau riche middle-class families were popping up all over the place. They generally had more money and more power than the old aristocracies, but they didn't have the influence or the grandeur that those famous names had. The first to concern us are the noblesse de robe. They certainly weren't the common people of France, not by a long shot. The third estate was a very large and very poor group of people. However, the aristocracy of magistrates made up the various parlements around France, which wasn't a national parliament. They were smaller administrative parliaments. However, under Richelieu, the Parlement had been denied rights to approve laws and impose taxes and make political appointments. Those were traditional, feudal responsibilities of local lords that had been taken over by the noblesse de robe. However, under Richelieu, they had been given to governors appointed by the king, which means Richelieu. So the Parlement of Paris, the aristocracy of lawyers, the closest thing to a national parlement they might have, demanded an estates general. That is, of course, where the nobility, the clergy, and the people get together to hold a general parliament. They were, however, denied in that. However, the very, very young king and his mother met the Parlement of Paris at the Palais Justice on 12th July, 1648. The opening statement of that meeting reads in the kind of revolutionary language I love. Quote, For ten years France has been reduced to ruin. The peasantry must sleep upon straw, for their effects have been sold to pay taxes. To enable certain people to live in luxury in Paris, countless innocent persons must survive on the meanest bread, owning nothing but their souls, and that merely because nobody has devised a means to put them up for sale. End quote. Then the Parlement of Paris issued a list of demands to the king and queen mother that, at the time, seemed positively revolutionary. They wanted their affairs to go back to the way things had been before Richelieu, the lowest ebb of royal privilege in France. As you can imagine, the Habsburg princess turned Queen of France, heard their demands, understood their complaints, and enacted the reforms without question. Yeah, I'm just messing with you. She arrested all the leadership and threw them into the Bastille. 
given what we know of later French history, the response was going to be obvious. The people erected barricades around Paris, they looted the local torch and pitchfork emporium, and marched on the Palais Royal like the townsfolk in a Frankenstein movie. Really, though, they were more fond of another weapon. They had slings that they used for throwing rocks, kind of a David and Goliath thing. And this earned them the nickname Frondeur, and that gave the rebellion its name, the Fronde. When they marched on the palace, they chanted, Vive le Roy, a mort Mazarin. Essentially, up with the king, kill Cardinal Mazarin. However, the cardinal was already gone, along with the young king and his mother. The Frondeur, though, held the city of Paris, and they continued to hold it for several months under a leadership of a growing clique of noble rebels. Will Durant describes that clique, and I'm going to read a relatively long passage here, but I just love the language. Quote, Many nobles saw in the revolt a chance to win the restoration of feudal privileges. Perhaps also they feared that the uprising would get out of hand without pedigreed leadership. Great lords like the Duc de Longueville and Bouillon, and even the Prince de Conti of royal bourbon blood, joined the rebellion and brought to it soldiers, funds, and romance. The Duchesse de Bouillon and the Duchesse de Longueville came to live in the Hôtel de Ville as voluntary hostages, guaranteeing the fidelity of their husbands to the Parlement and the people. While Paris became an armed camp, titled ladies danced in the city hall, and the Duchesse de Longueville carried on a liaison with the Prince de Marseillac, who was not yet the Duc de la Rochefoucauld, and not yet cynical. On January 28th, the Duchesse raised the morale of the revolt by giving birth to Marseillac's son. Many frondeurs bound themselves as chivalric servitors to highborn ladies who bought their blood with condescending smiles. End quote. That's the court in exile of the Duchesse de Longueville and the Duc de la Rochefoucauld I mentioned, now ensconced in the middle of Paris, with an army of Parisian peasants under them. Now, the Queen Mother tried to return to Paris at one point, without Mazarin and without her son, they were safely out of the city, but the crowd there shouted her back out of town. They did so primarily with jeers about her relationship to Mazarin, which I bet sounded polite and fancy in the French. But the queen, realizing how desperate the situation had become, raised an army under the great Condé. That's the older brother of the Frondeur Condé. And that army besieged Paris. Then came the fatal mistake. When the queen chose to side with Mazarin, what she did was snub her distant relations in Spain. The... Noble Frondeurs still had those ties to the Spanish Habsburgs and decided to use them. They reached out to Spain for military aid to fight this French army raised by the Queen. Now, think about all of that foreign influence that I've been talking about today. Italians and Austrians and Spaniards all trying to gain a foothold in French politics. The people of France 
were happy to fight for the French noblemen and noblewomen that led them, people with names like Longueville and Rochefoucauld, but when they had to fight under or alongside Spanish soldiers, well, that was too much to consider. I mean, whatever your politics may be, seeking foreign aid to secure your place in power is never a good look. The support that the frondeurs had enjoyed melted away almost immediately. The nobles sent a letter to the queen, telling her that they had only joined the rebellion to guard her and the young king's interests against an unruly Parisian mob. Now, they never minced words about supporting Mazarin. They said that they did not and they would not, but... Their position in the rebellion was merely to guide the frondeurs safely until they disbanded, so there wouldn't be too much loss of life. They never mentioned the proposed Spanish army, although the queen did know about it. See, this letter was a lie, and everyone knew it. The queen knew it, and the frondeurs knew it, and the frondeurs knew the queen knew it, and on and on. But when Queen Anne and Cardinal Mazarin and the very young Louis XIV re-entered Paris, they found that the barricades had been torn down and cleaned up, and the court awaited them at the Palais Royal eagerly. All was forgiven, nothing was forgotten. Life appeared to go back to normal for the French people, for the French aristocracy, for the royal court, for the Parlement, but it didn't last. Next time, we're going to talk about the second fronde, which will introduce us and the entire world to the brilliance of the Sun King, Louis Fourteenth. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon or signed up to support the show through the website, Everybody who has left us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show, thank you. I couldn't do this without you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com or get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. And while I haven't seen any snow yet, the days are getting short. I'd like to wish everybody a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, Yule, Saturnalia, or Solstice. Whatever you choose to celebrate, I hope you have a happy and safe holiday season. Thank you for listening. Come now.
Let him live on in legend tonight.